Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to Home Secretary Swala Braverman. Braverman was born and raised in northwest London. Her parents emigrated to the UK from Kenya and Mauritius, respectively. After studying law at Cambridge, Braverman was a barrister before entering Parliament as MP for the Conservative stronghold of Fareham, Hampshire, in 2015. She moved swiftly through the ministerial ranks, becoming Brexit Minister in 2018, then Attorney General in 2020. And now, as Home Secretary, she holds one of the four great offices of state. In this detailed interview, recorded in the Home Office in late February 2023, Bravman outlines why her childhood made her a Conservative, defends the government's small boats policy, and explains why the UK may eventually need to leave the European Convention on Human Rights while reflecting on why she attracts so many negative headlines. I see my job as telling the truth and fixing problems, she says. And sometimes when the truth is uncomfortable, people get upset. Home Secretary, thank you so much for joining us here on GB News. You're from a proud Northwest London immigrant background. Your Indian parents came to Britain via Kenya and Mauritius, respectively. What is it about your background, your family history, that made you a Conservative? Well, Liam, very good to join you on GB News today. Uh, and you're right, it is my family background that has made me a Conservative. My parents admired this country uh, hugely when they were children, growing up under the British Empire, before the winds of change in Mauritius and Kenya, as you mentioned. And they saw uh, what Britain brought to the world during World War II, uh, through uh, its contribution to Mauritius and Kenya infrastructure, the legal system, language, uh, 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 other, uh, the civil service. Um, and then as young adults, they came here and were incredibly grateful for the welcome that Britain offered them. My mother was recruited at the age of 18 by the NHS, and she thereafter worked for 45 years as a nurse here. And she's always been very proud of working for the NHS and working in Britain. My father came here for different reasons. He was effectively kicked out from Kenya. And he often tells me about the cold February morning mm. uh, in 1968 when he stepped off the plane at Heathrow Airport with no money and no, no one with him. And it was Britain and his British passport that was his symbol of hope. So I think the, my parents' background has really informed my appreciation and love of Britain uh, and British values. Do we take that for granted too often? Do too many politicians take for granted what Britain is and what it represents in terms of opportunity, freedom, rule of law? I think there is a tendency to um, apologise uh, for what Britain did for the world historically and, um, and be a bit shy about our greatness looking forward. I'm very optimistic about uh, our future. I believe in the genius of Britain, the, uh, what Britain has brought to civilization, to culture, to science, to statecraft. And I believe those are great foundations which have been, which will set us up well for the future, but also are emulated around the world. But I'm also a conservative because of personal experiences. I, my father actually had a, uh, was unemployed 
destroyed for, for some years during the 1990s. And that was, for me, a, a life-changing experience. It taught me values of hard work, personal responsibility, aspiration. And I think the combination of being proud of Britain and our traditions and uh, the, um, the value of aspiration and hard work have made me a conservative. From that humble background, of course, you won a place at Cambridge, you read law, you've passed the bar exam in New York as well. How does your legal training make you the politician that you are today? You're right. I, I'm very grateful for the excellent education that I had and uh, studying uh, and practicing law um, has really informed my politics. I think when you work in the justice system, you work with uh, a variety of people I, I represented. I specialised originally in planning and town and country planning law, helping uh, people and local authorities uh, on development issues. I thereafter uh, represented the government um, as part of the Treasury uh, Council panel, uh, defending the Home Office in immigration and asylum cases. And I think my legal experience uh, as a barrister really informed my politics. And you've stood your ground as Attorney General of course, you famously referred the Colston Four to the Court of Appeal. They'd been acquitted of uh, criminal damage when they threw that statue into the port in Bristol. The, the, the great and the good very much tut-tutted, and yet the Court of Appeal upheld your view. How did that feel to prove so many people wrong based on a fine legal judgment? You're right. I, was, I really welcomed the decision ultimately from the Court of Appeal, which vindicated the approach that I took. The problem that we identified was that uh, protesters had been charged with criminal damage. They pulled down the statue. And let's put aside the historical connotations of the statue. It was, uh, to my mind, a legitimate charge of criminal damage. At trial, they relied on human rights as a defence. And that was upheld, and they were thereafter acquitted. I wasn't able to overturn the verdict of the jury in the trial, but what my referral did was it raised the issue of law, and it asked senior judges to establish whether, indeed, the Human Rights Act or articles in the European Convention on Human Rights could act as a defence mm. to charges of criminal damage. And the Court of Appeal uh, uh, ruled in my favour and said no. An important precedent. Talking of the law, Home Secretary, over 45,000 people crossed the channel in small boats last year. The number this year is expected to be a lot higher. Rishi Sunak, in his own words, is committed to passing new laws to stop the small boats. Those laws have now been laid before Parliament. Does that mean that the government's ruled out leaving the European Convention on Human Rights in order to try and tackle this vexed problem? Because you've previously advocated that we should. Well, I'd say nothing's, nothing's ruled out at the moment. And we are in the process of preparing our bill to be introduced into Parliament very soon. And uh, my personal views are well known. Mm. Uh, what I want to deliver is a system whereby if you arrive here illegally, you'll be detained and thereafter swiftly removed. And if we can deliver that system and that framework, then we shouldn't need to leave the ECHR. You'll know that British lawyers and MPs drafted the European Convention of Human Rights in the shadow of World War II. We were the first country to ratify it. Leaving it would mean only the UK plus Belarus and Russia in the Council of Europe were outside the ECHR. Would that be OK? Well, I think that there are legitimate questions 
that we need to start asking relating to our membership of the European Convention of Human Rights and its operation in the United Kingdom. We've seen there's a politicised and expansionist court in Strasbourg that regulates the convention sometimes at odds with British values, whether it's our ability to remove people to Rwanda, as we saw last year, the European Court on Human Rights intervened at the 11th hour to stop us from doing that, whether it's our ability to deport foreign paedophiles, whether it's um, uh, our ability to police protests, whether it's the issue on uh, resolving the issue of um, Northern Ireland legacy claims or uh, legal claims brought against our own soldiers who fought in Iraq. In many instances of policy making, the Human Rights Act, what I call uh, as part of the long tail of Blairism, its operation combined with the ECHR and the court have operated to stymie policy making. You make, you make a strong legal case with respect to Home Secretary, but the optics of leaving the ECHR are difficult. You've got the stomach to leave it, clearly, has the Prime Minister. At this stage, nothing's ruled out. We need to ensure that we fix this problem of illegal migration. That's my priority. And as the Prime Minister himself has said, he'll do whatever it takes to achieve that goal. We've had 45,000 people last year arrive here illegally on small boats. That situation is unacceptable. We need to design a robust uh, framework. We need to have a deterrent so people stop making the journey in the first place and we have to do whatever it takes to ensure that we can deliver that. In light of those uh, small boat incidents we've seen protests now around the country increasingly in Liverpool, in, in Rotherham, protests planned in, in Newquay uh, in the West Country. Some have been calling in the media those protesters against asylum seekers perhaps some people will call them illegal immigrants, others would call them. Some have said that those protesters are far right. Is that a fair characterisation of those protesters? Well, what I would say firstly is that violence is never acceptable. And intimidation, harassment, uh, any forms of abuse to anybody uh, are totally, uh, should be condemned. And I condemn them in the fullest possible terms. And it's clear that we have an unsustainable situation in towns and cities around our country, whereby because of the overwhelming numbers of people arriving here illegally and our legal duties to accommodate them, we are now having to uh, house them in hotels. And that is causing understandable tensions within communities, pressures on local resources, and is frankly unsustainable. So you support those protesters? I, I, I very much understand people's frustrations with hotels being occupied by large numbers of illegal immigrants or asylum seekers. So what do you make of a leader of a council in Cornwall calling such protesters who are planning a protest in Newquay abhorrent racists and bigots? Is that fair? I, I, as I said, I think anyone contemplating violence, harassment or intimidation uh, should, uh, should desist from doing that. It is not an acceptable way to voice your concerns or frustrations. We are all frustrated with the situation that we are currently finding ourselves in. And, uh, and you know, it, is, it is clear and undeniable that there are uh, really, really serious pressures on communities. And saying so does not make you racist or bigoted. You're from the background that, that you're from. 
Home Secretary, do you think our political and media class more generally understand the strength of feeling about this small boats illegal immigration issue, particularly among migrant communities here in the UK who've adhered to the rules over generations? Well, this is the other angle to this problem. The fact that there are tens of thousands of people coming here illegally is unacceptable because they're jumping the queue and they are undermining our ability to support those people who are coming here legitimately as refugees or as asylum seekers. It is actually inhibiting our ability to provide sanctuary to those people who are coming here lawfully. It is also uh, a serious uh, uh, undermining of our laws and our uh, arrangements that we have when it comes to controlling our borders. It's incumbent on any government to control their borders and where we must ensure that we uh, do that uh, more robustly in the future. You've called the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, quotes, one of the biggest tools we have in dealing with the EU over the issue of the Northern Ireland border. What did you mean by that? What would we use that tool for? Well, there are problems with the operation of the protocol right now. And that is clear for everyone to see. There are problems with trade across the Irish Sea within the UK internal market. There are problems with a democratic deficit, that being that Northern Ireland is still on the receiving end of hundreds of laws being passed uh, at the EU level and applying in Northern Ireland. And there are problems with the delivery of public services in Northern Ireland because of a, an executive which is not functioning. Now, those, all of those problems need fixing. I believe that the proposed legislation that the government introduced... That allows ministers to avoid parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol as it stands. Yes, uh, is an important tool in fixing some of the issues that I've just talked about. Doesn't it up the ante? Doesn't it make a deal with the EU tougher? No, I, I actually think if you look at historically at how our deals and agreements have been reached with the EU, it's important that we take a robust approach. Uh, we need to... You know, my clear preference is for us to reach a workable and pragmatic uh, agreement with the EU. I know that the Prime Minister shares that objective and I know that he's working flat out to reach a, such an agreement whilst not compromising on our sovereignty uh, or on the place of Northern Ireland in, inside the United Kingdom. But that protocol bill, as you say, a vital negotiating tool, is languishing in the Lords. The word on the street is that Number 10's abandoned it. That's not my perception. I, I know that the Prime Minister is absolutely committed to resolving this issue, uh, regardless of, uh, of the implications. It's absolutely essential that we get Stormont back up and functioning, that we restore uh, uh, free-flowing trade uh, across the Irish Sea so that businesses in Northern Ireland and Great Britain can do, uh, can, can, can uh, you know, uh, carry out their commercial activities, um, but also that Northern Ireland's place within the UK uh, is safeguarded. Simon Clark, former Cabinet Minister, has said there will be a very real problem for the government if there is a Northern Ireland deal that doesn't carry the support of the DUP. Is he right? Listen, the DUP are uh, an important voice in this debate and in this discussion. They Vital. speak. Can we have a deal that they don't agree to? 
we have always worked very closely with the DUP. They are unionists, they speak for a significant portion of the communities in Northern Ireland and they need to be uh, round the table. Ultimately, Stormont will only function if the DUP supports any proposal. You resigned, of course, as a Brexit minister in 2018 over Theresa May's deal. Would you resign over this? Listen, I don't think we need to be talking about resignation. I've taken a very forthright position in the past because I've found the terms of previous uh, agreements intolerable. Uh, I, I, I don't uh, support selling out on Northern Ireland and uh, allowing the EU a foothold in the United Kingdom. It's absolutely uh, vital that we safeguard what we've gained from the Brexit vote, that we go forward as a United Kingdom where the integrity of our union is safeguarded and we properly take back control. And I know the Prime Minister shares that objective. What can we learn, Home Secretary, from the Lancashire Constabulary's actions when it comes to their investigation of what we can only describe as the tragedy of Nicola Bully? Well, it is a tragedy. It's a human tragedy on a devastating scale. And my thoughts and sympathies go out to the family, the friends and the young children uh, of Nicola. And what they must be going through right now is unthinkable for most of us. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to allow uh, a family and a community to grieve in private. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I had concerns mm. about the decision by Lancashire Police to release personal information relating to Nicola. I raise those concerns with the police. It is ultimately a decision for the police. They've got operational independence in that regard. And what we have now is a series of inquiries and reviews looking at that issue, that decision to release personal information, their handling of the case and the investigation. I think it's right that we allow those inquiries to conclude before we prejudge. Pretty unfortunate, though, to talk about her in the way that was discussed. I don't even want to repeat it when obviously her family is worried and now grieving for her. I had concerns for those very similar reasons. And uh, as I say, it's a decision relating to operational independence that the police themselves will make in their professional judgment. There are reviews which are looking into the circumstances around how and why they made that decision. And let's see what those come up with. And what would you say about the Mets dismissing repeated concerns that were raised about David Carrick, somebody who is now serving 36 life sentences for 85 offences, including multiple rapes. What's going on within our police force, in this case, the flagship constabulary, the biggest constabulary, that allows that kind of wrongdoing to take place, as many police officers have since said, pretty much in plain sight? It's unforgivable. And that's why it was right for the Met Commissioner to be very forward-leaning in his apology to the victims and actually to the broader public for the shattering of confidence that cases like David Carrick or even uh, Wayne Cousins have brought about. And I think what we need all to do now is look forward. We need to ensure that we rebuild confidence. I know the Met Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley wholly understands that challenge and is not shying away from the enormity of that challenge. It's about reviewing data and ensuring that we uh, root out any officers who are not fit to wear the badge. It's about improving our standards um, that we apply to vetting and recruitment. And it's about ensuring that ultimately the public have confidence in our police. Some of the rape victims are talking about claiming compensation.
Well, I think with that... your lawyer's hat on, have they got a case? It would, that would depend on whether there was uh, a negligent decision or uh, on the part of the organisation or uh, an individual. Uh, and this is why uh, we are now looking into what's gone on. We, we've had some uh, evidence of what has been happening. The inspectorate reported last year uh, about uh, vetting systems throughout the country and it made a series of uh, recommendations, all of which are being put into action now. And I'm monitoring those very, very closely. But uh, if it, it depends on whether you know it's the fault of an individual or an organisation or whether the system itself was at fault. And I think we need to you know, ensure that the system changes and that decisions which are not serving the public good are not repeated. Last couple of questions, if I may. How does someone as canny, as politically shrewd as Nicola Sturgeon get the public mood so wrong when it comes to those gender identity issues? Were you surprised? Well, when it comes to the gender recognition bill that Nicola Sturgeon proposed, I, I had incredibly serious reservations uh, about the implications of that legislation from a, a, a women's uh, first of all I should say you know anybody struggling with gender dysphoria or uh, any adult uh, or any person who wants to change gender should be treated with compassion and they should get all the support that they need and it is lawful under the Equality Act to protect single-sex spaces for men and women and that means it is lawful to exclude a biological man who may identify as a woman from a, a lady's toilet or changing room or single-sex service. And that's absolutely fundamental. The chattering glasses have got this wrong, haven't they? They just don't get it. There seems to be a sort of disconnect among a lot of media and political types about how angry ordinary folk are about these issues. It's absolutely fundamental for women's safety. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, you know, in England, Wales, we have 10,000 women in domestic abuse refuges. Now those are vulnerable women and it's absolutely non-negotiable that those women feel safe and that they are protected from predatory men. And Nicola Sturgeon's proposals would have completely undermined something like that scenario and it would have allowed, uh, it would allow predatory men to access single sex spaces like a domestic abuse refuge. And it's not just a theoretical risk, it's a real risk. Last year, we actually saw a transgender woman who was a convicted, uh, a registered sex offender, access a domestic abuse refuge. That is an unacceptable situation and it exemplifies the real risk posed to women's safety uh, by this legislation. It's absolutely fundamental that it does not come into force. Last question, if I may, Home Secretary. Um, you've come in for a lot of abuse, I think it's fair to say. The press often uh, attacks you. Um, do you like being Home Secretary? Well, it's an enormous responsibility, uh, requiring an unrelenting amount of work. And you see firsthand and very close up the serious risks that we face every day, whether it's from a law enforcement point of view and what our police do, the security services and what our agencies do, terrorism threat, uh, the issues relating to migration. And actually, I am um, more focused on protecting the British people and uh, ensuring that we uh, equip our agencies uh, against the terror threat, that we ensure that we fix illegal migration and that our police are serving the public well. Uh, it must be tough, though. You're a, you're, you're a human being. A lot of opprobrium is thrown on you, as it was, in fairness, on Priti Patel, one of your 
predecessors because you are standing up for issues that an awful lot of ordinary people feel strongly about. Doesn't it get lonely? Well, I see my role as telling the truth and then fixing the problem. And sometimes the truth is uncomfortable for some people and they might get upset by hearing the truth. I'm not going to shy away from telling the truth to the British people and for the British people. That's my role as Home Secretary. Suella Braverman, thank you much for appearing on GB News. Thank you, Liam. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. GB News, Britain's news channel.